Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Everybody, welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. And today we are talking about Spice and Sandworms and the real OG nerd stuff. We were talking about Denis Villeneuve's recently released adaptation of Dune. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister at Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In our first segment, Justification by Faith, we're going to talk about how Dune helps us think about life in the church and in the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how Dune might help us understand the lectionary passages for November 14th, the 33rd Sunday after Pentecost, year B. And then finally, in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading, watching, or following. But before we get too far down the road, I want to introduce our guest, Casey Thompson. Casey is the newly christened Chief Frank Herbert correspondent for our podcast. He's presently the pastor of Wayne Presbyterian Church outside of Philadelphia, and we were thrilled to have him on the show. Casey, welcome. Thanks for being with us. It is uh, it's a delight to be here. Thank you. So, Adam and Casey, back when the final Harry Potter film came out, Slate ran a piece where they sent somebody to see the movie who had never read any of the books or seen any of the prior movies, and then they asked this person to tell them the plot. And as you might imagine, it was wonderfully chaotic and messy. And I think that role may be my role in this podcast today. I have never read Dune. I have never, to my recollection, seen the David Lynch Dune or the old sci-fi channel miniseries of Dune. I have zero literacy in anything this world is trying to communicate, except that every once in a while as I was watching this version, I would recognize a line that maybe I'd seen on Twitter before somewhere. As far as I can tell, we've got a planet that is basically coded as Middle Eastern, We've got a resource on this planet, which is basically coded as a weird combination of marijuana and petroleum. We end up with a science fiction epic that feels very allegorical and a little psychedelic at the same time, which is this new Denis Villeneuve adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune, or part one thereof, as it announces brazenly in the opening titles. Honestly, I'm not entirely sure what I just watched, nor am I entirely sure what I think of it. I think I need some expert consultation. And so I turn to you all, Casey, what did I just watch? And what should I think of it? And what the heck does Dune have to do with our life in ministry and in the church? Well, thank you. I I should say, full disclosure, I've only read Dune once. And so I feel a little bit like the... uh, the graduate assistant teacher who has stepped in and said, oh, of course I know everything. Um, <laughs> but I read it last year um, after having seen it for years on my parents' uh, bookshelf. It's one of the, the books I remember very early from growing up, seeing this uh, my entire life. And I finally picked it up um, at the beginning of the pandemic and read it and fell in love with it almost immediately. 
Uh, and what that means for me is that I immediately went down this rabbit hole of uh, what is happening in this world, trying to figure out uh, the world building and, and why it was significant and, and those pieces. And uh, all of that is in the movie a little bit, uh, but it's also one of those movies where uh, you can see it, but if you sort of knew the background of it, it might make a little more sense. So I can give you a, a one minute background if, if you think that'd be helpful. Let's do it. Let's do All it. Right. Yes. So uh, this is the human race that we're talking about. Twenty thousand years into the future, old Earth is no longer viable, and so we've sort of spread into the galaxy. And then about ten thousand into the uh, future, there is what's called the Butlerian Jihad, and it's a war between uh, humans and thinking machines. So think artificial intelligence wherein humanity actually wins the war for once. That's usually not how it happens in sci-fi. Um, but computers are essentially banned for the rest of eternity. And, and the one great uh, crime is to create something like uh, a thinking machine. Um, what happens after that is all the human religions come together. They create what's called the Orange Catholic Bible and sort of a mishmash uh, of a variety of religious themes from across the world. And the central tenet is thou shall not disfigure the human soul or distort the soul in some way. But because they no longer have computers, but they're spread out through the galaxy, um, they dig further into the sort of human capacity of what's possible. And that shows up in this movie really in two ways. One is kind of, um, you don't see it as much, but it's the Mintat. It's basically the, the capo um, of the family and uh, that is the, the human who is a logical processor at such a dramatic capacity that they can sort of see into the future somewhat. Uh, Paul is going to be trained as one of these when he's young uh, because his father thinks that a mintat as a duke will be a, a fine ruler. And then on the other side, you have the Bene Gesserit, which sounds like Jesuits for a reason. Um, which is the women who essentially guide things from the shadow and are part of a shadow society and that have uh, engaged in this very long, like middle, millennia long program, eugenics program really to, to produce what's called the, the Kwisatz Haderach, which every time you hear in the film is sort of his statue. Um, and so you may not even recognize that, that it was there, um, but it's this term for the one who sees everything. Uh, and it's the, the person, it's the Dr. Strange, if you will, the one who can see all of the future and all the past and is able to guide uh, really humanity to a period where uh, it looks like they might collapse. But this is the way that the Bene Gesserit are trying to survive for humanity is that they are putting their their faith in, in one person to do that. So these powers that everyone have, uh, and the, the capacity to fly interstellar um, is really enhanced by that spice. That's why the spice is so um, valuable. You can't travel through planets without it. The, the people who are doing the computations and whatnot on the planes are uh, people who are taking the spice and they've been genetically engineered to be able to do those calculations. Um, but it's also that sort of psychedelic drug you're absolutely dead on about that, um, that allows people sort of a mind-altering consciousness expansion. This was written in the 60s, after all. So um, that's sort of the what's behind it all. Um, and then you have this, this weird sort of feudal society 
that they've fallen back into with, with the great houses, the Harkonnens who are the ravenous consumers of everything, and the Atreides who um, are basically um, built upon the image of the Kennedys in the 1960s. <laughs> so, Paul, Paul wasn't really supposed to be that Messiah figure, though. It's supposed to be one more generation. Um, but Lady Jessica loves her husband or her, she's a concubine. Um, she loves him so much that she decides to give him a son and it sort of short circuits the eugenics program. And with all of that, you have this, um, that's all this sort of background to it, which is why this, you know, 120 pound figure is somehow the warrior messiah that everyone is waiting for. Uh, the other piece of that is the B'nai Jedals are at Whenever they go into a new place, they sort of seed um, mythology of what the the one who is to come looks like. And so that's why when he shows up on Arrakis, um, everyone's already ready to think that he is the, the Messiah figure. All right, Matt, as someone who doesn't know anything about Dune, does this movie make more or less sense with Casey's primer? We're going to edit out me staring out into the distance for about 60 seconds trying to figure out how to answer that question. I honestly don't know. Um, in some ways, it makes more sense. You know, obviously, I can sense around the edges of this film the the the, the profound, the sort of big world-building questions about the Bene Gesserit, about... The, the the long history of the universe. I never would have picked up on the um, the history with the computers and artificial intelligence. I never would have picked up on uh, the idea that there were genetically enhanced folks that are there to pilot the starships and that the spice is enabling them to do that. That actually seems like a pretty key piece of exposition that I missed entirely if it was there. Uh, so that th those are... Those sort of interesting things. I mean, it feels like justification for that sort of not unusual sci-fi trope, which I identify as also very Star Warsian, where we are deeply in the future and also the technology is deeply in the past. Um, and everyone is sort of wearing feudal robes and basically playing out like medieval fantasy scenarios, except we have spaceships, uh, which is know a sort of trapping of the genre that i didn't even bother to occur to me to for them to justify um so i, I mean I, I it makes a little bit more sense now i'm really curious with that setup and casey and with your knowledge and background uh was the movie satisfying to you like did did, did it play out the world that you had in your imagination um and and did it did it ask interesting questions for you as someone who had some fluency with it going in? Uh, as a visual experience, it, it was um, astounding. Um, and I did see it IMAX and, and was absolutely blown away um, by what I saw. Um, this this has historically been referred to as uh, unfilmable. And it feels like um, technology may have finally caught up to a place where it could actually be filmed. And so uh, it is very faithful to the story. And um, the part that is unsatisfying about it uh, is that it's part one and none of these things really come to a sense of conclusion. Uh, that's the part that sort of feels like, uh, I wish there were a little bit more. 
I wish I could see a little bit more. And then I think, you know, one of the sort of central questions of the book, I think, is um, it's, you know, they do a hat tip to it in, in the movie, but it's it's really a question of, I mean, this, this was a planet that could be a paradise. And they sort of refer to that. And Dr. Liet Kynes is the one who has plans to make it so, um, but it's too valuable. And so it, it becomes this question of, you know, are you allowed to desecrate a planet for the sake of a, of a resource? And um, I think it's really an ecological book at its, at its heart. So that's the part that feels unsatisfying. Well, I think that's part two that like, and maybe I'm just a s- strange movie watcher, but like there is this ecological piece that like not just around like where spice come from. And, you know, like most sci-fi, I don't think we need all of the answers, but it seems like from the background, like at least the original text has this sort of like ecological vision about what is going on, why it's going on. And, um, <clears throat> and I feel like, again, this, this, book has so many i mean the the movie itself has so many details and you don't want to sacrifice the story like the actual central conflict of these particular characters for the sake of the world itself on arrakis right and yet i found myself kind of most interested in arrakis worms and fremen all of whom kind of sit on the periphery with respect to the plot now, the second movie might, I, I, it looks at least like the Fremen are going to be more central in, in, their, in, in their place. But what we get is something that I think, at least to me, feels kind of derivative, but is not actually derivative because it is the thing from which so many stories derived. Like this idea of houses, right? Like I'm like, okay, yeah, like House Targaryen, House Anister, House... How Stark got it, got it. Um, like this chosen one who doesn't know that he's the chosen one who has visions. I'm like, okay, Neo, got it, got it. Um, or Luke Skywalker, or um, I mean, it, it even looks like <clears throat> Bill Nuv is, and there's even like two suns at some point, or like two moons, or something like this in the movie that's shown. And I was like, this is this meta textual sort of nature of everything is getting a little con- like. I kind of like it, but then there's a part of me that's like, is that good filmmaking? I don't know, because in some ways it feels like a little fan service to everything that's come after it, at least it understands itself. So on the one hand, as a movie, it is obvious that this is a labor of love. And to your point, like the, the, the sound, the art direction, the look of everything, actually the performance, like there's not a person in this cast that I don't think is great as an actor and haven't loved their work somewhere else. Um, and so there's that, that's really interesting. There's, um, there is a sort of central conflict. There are allegories and analogies toward our wider world that I think are really prescient and important, especially around questions of extraction, earth care, things like that. And Villeneuve, loves the text he also seems to understand that this is an important text for so much that comes after it and i hope he seems to recognize the sort of the 21st century problem of white saviors in places where like in colonial places and other places like that and the movie stopping where it did at least to my mind was like okay does he understand this 
Like <laughs> he's got another movie to make sure that he signals to us that like Herbert's vision is very much in the sixties and maybe needs to be updated to some, to some extent so that we're not just recreating the sort of central Western myths of the past that, that will ultimately undermine the larger points about extraction, about colonialism, about, I mean, the movie begins really interestingly, I thought with the question by Zendaya, who we don't see for like the next, <laughs> for yeah. the next two hours um, of like, who will our next oppressors be? That's a pretty, like that started me and I was like, oh damn, like I didn't know we were gonna start there. Okay, so it looks as if the filmmakers know some of the central problems with this and are gonna try and work it in. But I left, I finished the movie not fully convinced that they have a solution forward, but maybe they do. I mean, they've got a second part. Yeah, I mean, as you pointed out, for all of the ways in which I felt like I was watching the source material for things that come after, whether they be Star Wars, Game of Thrones, um, uh, Matrix, as you said, the, the the text that really screamed through this for me was Lawrence of Arabia. And, 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 I, and, I, and I wanted to know whether or not Frank Herbert was poking at that with critical eye or just sort of playing it forward. Um, because it, it, that feels like, I mean, Arrakis and the Fremen are explicitly coded as Middle Eastern. This, this feels like a pretty concrete allegory about resource extraction from the Middle East um, and the ways in which colonial powers, certainly in the middle of this century, had were in the process of dividing up and ravaging uh, that part of the world, I mean, continue to be so. And Lawrence of Arabia plays very much into the the sort of white savior mystique of how um, colonialist powers have related to that geography. And I, I, I think the, the idea of um, uh, the Atreides house sort of being being sent to go be the steward of this desert land uh, and and then you know the, the their epiphany is these people are worth saving. <laughs> <laughs> still, still feels really centered to me in a way that uh, I struggled with a bit. But I'm I'm with you, Adam. Like I don't entirely know where the books go from that point. Um, I'm not sure that I entirely. Again, this is spoken as full outsider. I'm not sure that I entirely trust Frank Herbert to tell that story well, just because of age and time. But I, I but I'm I'm hopeful that Denis Villeneuve can tell it well. Um, and I kind of think you don't cast Zendaya in that role if you're not committed to doing something really interesting over time with it, which which is is the thing that I sort of hanging my hat on. So what what I don't know about this is how committed he is to telling the the fuller canon, if you will, because mm. uh, if he only gets part two, it's going to end in a very troubling place for you, I think. Um, which is uh, well, I'll just, I'll leave it at that. But uh, white supremacists love this book. Um, not only does it have a eugenics uh, program uh, to produce the 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 perfect person. 
very much as a white savior uh, uh, character, and and so this this is a book that has been glommed onto by uh, by many white supremacists as a as a portal to talking about some of their ideas. Now, having said that, I, I do know what happens to the character, and and uh, what I can say is, well into the future, well beyond what you would see in a part two, is that uh, Paul essentially at some point in his life wanders out into the desert and becomes a preacher uh, instead of a ruler um, and is the sort of unknown preacher that that presents himself in a in a future book uh, that essentially is the prophetic witness against the entire house that he built uh, that he has come to understand that what he's done is a, a terrible thing um, and whether that represents uh, Herbert at some point coming to grips with uh, those sorts of questions, um, I don't know. Uh, but it is somewhat undercut in the book series itself. But having said that, if we have a part two, and it looks like we're going to have a part two, it's going to end a very difficult place. Um, and it, you're, I mean, you're right 100% that, that these were based on sort of Bedouin tribes. Um, the Fremen are, that's, that itself is a, a contraction of free men. They were brought as slaves to work that space um, and then essentially rebelled and, and found their freedom. Um, and they are, they are coded as Sunni, uh, Zen Sunni, a combination um, in that, that particular worldview. It'll be interesting to see how he does this if he's only committed to uh, the two films. Yeah, they've announced the second film and shortly after the first one yeah. released and actually did fairly well. They've, they've, they've given a release date, like a 2023 release date, I think, for part two. So that that is happening. Um, but yeah, whether it goes beyond that, I don't know. At some point, I would imagine that Villeneuve wants to go do other things. He doesn't strike me as someone who weds himself to this franchise for the next 20 years, but I could be wrong. No, I, but I, I think to that point, Casey, I think, especially when working with these longer texts and you, when you're trying to tell a story that is told over generations or it's, there's a interesting question to be asked, which is, I think in the last 10 to 20 years, culture has just told us that like, we should just probably do these on TV. Right. Like I'm, yeah. I'm, I thought this like as a movie full of spectacle, it was remarkable. It's totally worth, um, worth watching. And, um, and there's a lot to think about. And I, I have some questions that I think pertain to ministry here too. in a second that I want to ask both of you, but, um, it has the feel of a movie. And I think Villeneuve like does movies really well. I don't think he has any interest in doing TV shows. Um, but it also seems like one of those stories where you just need longer. You, like I, I really was kind of interested in the sort of palace intrigue and we didn't get very much of that. And like this Leto character, I think Oscar, Oscar Isaacs is magnetic and charismatic. But I think he didn't have a lot to do in this movie. And I was more interested in this this relationship that he has with Lady Jessica and how they understand themselves. And so there's a there was a lot left around the edges that I think could have been rounded out. And and a lot of that can then 
provide the multiple storylines with that where you sort of undermine the white messianic character to begin with by complicating all of the stuff that goes into it. Now I will say, and this is where I want to talk about ministry a little bit. Like I think the storytelling device about the dreams was pretty interesting. So uh, splicing Paul's dreams throughout all of this stuff and his visions, and then beginning to realize that those visions are um, that, that we thought might be prophecies that would come true are not always entirely reliable. And that's a really interesting idea. Like as, as people who think about the future a lot and, you know, as, as the three of us who work in churches and think about the future of churches and, and really have to wrestle with the fact, like, is this dream I have about the future, something that is mine that I need to discard, that I need to doubt and trust or, um, or doubt and not trust? Or is this the thing that I trust as being the, the path, the journey, the way? Um, however, Paul get, talks about with him is like how he sees the, the future, sees the way forward. Um, there's something about that that I think just as leaders in a church where people do look to you to sort of have a vision, so to speak, like this movie at least complicates the people who claim to have a vision and whether or not that vision is any good. And not to spoil the end of the movie, there's that, there's that moment where he's getting taught by one of the Fremens in his vision. And then later, and you think, Oh, this is going to be his, this is going to be his teacher. This is going to be the one who teaches him about how to live in the desert, how to become someone. And then it ends up being the person that he kills that, that like, that was dissonant in a way that I thought was kind of quite powerful and quite, quite smart. Um, so as you thought about this with respect to like someone who is supposed to have dreams and supposed to be like, it was looked to to have vision. Did you feel the sort of tension of those of Paul, at least as he's trying to sort of reconcile the fact that there's all of this stuff going on and he doesn't know how to make sense of it. As you say that it, it strikes me that, you know, this question, uh, who are our next oppressors? Um, has a, a positive spin as well, which is who is our next leader? Um, and what is a pastor but a person who typically comes into a community, community that already has its ways of being, already has its uh, sort of unique trouble spots and areas of life, and um, this expectation that uh, people often have of their pastors that they're going to fit into that that perfectly. Um, and then somehow become often the center of that community, even if they don't want to be, right? And so it's it's this sort of oh, stepping into a, a leadership role, which is not unlike uh, what a lot of pastors go through, which is this expectation to come in and to, to have this vision of where the church will go, even when you don't know the church very well, even when you don't have... Um, clarity about what it is God might call you to next. And so this idea of the unreliable vision, yeah, I think it's it's kind of fantastic. It, it reminds me of, you know, and I, I live in this sort of wealthy area, and, and this phrase I think probably gets thrown around everywhere, but people say, you know, money follows vision. Um, and I also like to remind them bankruptcy follows vision as well, because often visions um, are wrong. And what is it that we can trust about the visions that we have? 
Um, and when, when does it become a vision um, that all of us have together rather than just uh, a singular person pointing the way, which is how I think churches tend to work, uh, tend to work best. Yeah, I think my, I'm, I'm sympathetic with that. And I think my understanding, my, my sort of pastoral identity here uh, resonates a lot more with the work that the Duke is called to do than it does with the work that Paul Atreides is called to do. Right, right, right. right like, 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 like Paul, Paul doesn't have to look for vision. He's not, no one's asking him for his vision. No one's begging it of him. He doesn't get up in the middle of the night going, what's my vision going to be? He's just like in classic sci-fi hero trope. He's just every once in a while, like vision afflicts him. And he's and it, it it comes upon him and he's not sure what to do with it. And yeah, it's unreliable, but it's also like in some ways undesired. Um uh and 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 just happens to be presumably what the what the narrative is going to need as it unfolds. Um that uh, I feel like I don't have vision for the church that um that shows up in my brain uninvited. It's something that to the degree that I ever have it is something that I have to labor for um, and, and, and have to search out. And on my best days, it's something that is, as Casey was saying, gathered in community uh, and, and hoped for in community. And so if there's, a, if there's a pastoral figure here that feels like church leadership to me, it feels a lot more like the Duke who agrees to this assignment, right? Who, who, who agrees to this call that may or may not be in his best interest, um, spoiler alert, and, uh, and, and, and sort of is acting more as, as a steward of this enterprise than he is as um, a, a bringer of radical vision. Uh, and, and, you know, the sort of sequences where he's getting shown around, like, this is, here's where all the machines are, here's how you work the thing, like, here's how the, this, this colony operates, like, that feels like um, what it is to come into a church, like, here's how yeah. we operate, here are the keys, um, try here's not to mess it up, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, well, and I think that, that, that aligns well with the other part of the movie that like got me thinking which is the um the the slow the slow blade penetrates the shield portion mm -hmm. of the movie which is like paul is given this vision and it's i mean we've got another movie but my sense is is like change is going to happen pretty quickly here like because that's how that's how these messianic figures work right like things things move quickly there is a fervor that comes and it's sort of a wave that casts that sort of breaks over everybody and catches them up in it um but at least like the duke does have a vision for arrakis right he wants to he wants to collaborate with the fremen yeah. and there's some there's some important reasons for that one of which is just his own self-security but there is that moment after they have they talk with Javier Bardem for the first time where they say like well it's begun and it's a long road 
Right. It's a slow blade that will penetrate the shield. Like it's going to take a long time for this to come to fruition. And so the faithfulness that's required for this type of leadership is just going to take like the slow steps that you make in order to get things done, which to my mind is the type of like church leadership that doesn't get a lot of, (laughs) doesn't get a lot of publicity press. Right. Um, it's not the romantic part of church leadership where you're like, I had this idea and I changed everything mm-hmm. or like I showed up and I, um, or me and a couple of people like me had this idea and it, and it overwhelmingly changed the church for the better or something like that. Whereas like, at least in my experiences, the things that no one really writes books about, but the things that have kept the church solvent and powerful in the world is the leaders who have been like, the slow blade penetrates the shield. I'm going to spend every day getting to know these people, loving them, caring for them. And together we will bend the church's mission in positive directions over a long period of time. And I, I believe in that church vision, even though I recognize that that is incredibly difficult and oftentimes like, in, um, just demoralizing because it doesn't always work and people don't change and like and sometimes you just hit the wall and your blade is not actually strong enough to penetrate the shield no matter how slow you go (laughs) and so it's um but like you Matt I think like looking at that Duke Leto character there is someone who who's thinking in a long term as well as the Bene Gesserit right like they have a sort of longer term vision as well too though they work from the sides sidelines a little bit more what I'm saying is basically me and Oscar Isaac are really similar. Oh, God. You really, look very similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's, people, people mistake us in public all the time. It's a really common problem. Yeah, it, it, it reminds me of, well, what's the Peterson quote? It's, it's a long obedience in a singular direction or something like that. It's, right. it's, it's the careful cultivation and slow uh, building of relationships and minor changes that dramatically affect the church over decades. Um, and it may or may not be a setup. I mean, that's the, yeah, the other... It may or may not be, right? right. Like, that, and that's the hardest thing to figure yeah. out. Like, this call, is this your opportunity to change things in the long run, right? Like, because I, I think with that little character, like, he recognizes that, like, the, he might die. Like, this is a dangerous situation. It's not. Um, it's not an easy one and that there's all sorts of sort of intrigue around him. And yet it also does provide for him the opportunity to secure himself against the Imperium who's going to, who, who sees him with um, some suspicion as a threat. And so he can't stay in that position as a threat if he doesn't have the sort of necessary resources that would come with collaborating with the Fremen. And I think that that like as a storyline, I think is actually quite rich. And and part of the reason why I kind of wanted a little bit more of that within the movie, which is to say, like, I see that there are these uh, archetypes that sort of attach themselves to the house and how they operate, whether it's Harkonnen or uh, Atreides. And yet, what we don't see is like how the like the the archetype of Atreides also shows up in Harkonnen and vice versa like because none of these none of these categories are static 
and they they start to mess with each other and that that could have that could have helped sort of undermine a little bit of of these simple categories that sometimes get used in within movies and like because i want to know like does does duke leto like what's he gonna do with the spice man like you're still extracting this thing from the earth or from the planet for use right like you 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 still are consuming this thing you are still caught in the system that requires this planet not to be a bed of sand rather than a paradise let's before we run out of steam here let's talk about the filmmaking just a little bit i mean adam you've hinted at this um but i I do think it's worth noting like phil novice really has a pretty singular cinematic vision um and i I certainly saw echoes of arrival and blade runner um his blade runner in in this um it was really drastically different than my understanding of the 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 david lynch version um and you know part of the reason that he doesn't have quite as much time for world building as that it takes him 10 minutes for a um, spaceship to lift off or land at any given moment. But there's like something beautiful and wonderful about that. Uh, uh, Casey, you saw this on IMAX. Just make me a little jealous. What was that like? And, you know, what did, how, how did the sense of the filmmaking here for both of you kind of contribute to your experience of the movie? I, I think the thing about the IMAX that was um, particularly overwhelming was the sense of scale, and it's it is a it is a narrative that lends itself to scale. Um, and so there's this beautiful shot near the beginning when the um, the herald of the change comes to uh, Caledon to tell them uh, what's about to happen, and you have this wonderful. Um, imaginative space craft and out of it comes a, a tiny little dot and from that dot it lands on the it lands on Caledon and you recognize that oh it's it's probably 300 feet tall um, and you just get a sense of scale in it in a way that I'm not sure would come across um, as much at home um, and then uh, the score is is um, astounding and you can feel your organ shake in, in the IMAX, uh, which just in itself is a beautiful thing uh, in terms of experiential sort of uh, re- reception of a story. So, um, you know, our, our, by and large, our TVs at home are so extraordinary that um, I didn't feel like I lost a lot of it. And most of what I felt like I lost was, was in the sound. Yeah, and the music and the sound design of this thing are spectacular. Ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Like, Hans Zimmer. Still got it. Yeah, it feels like he kind of... I mean, that felt like there was some of the um, Black Panther soundtrack that got into his brain a little bit and then got turned around and came out here. Like, it, it was really... I really respected his ability to kind of play with non-white western instrumentation and do something really original and beautiful Uh, yeah like i I mean that's that's i mean so that's the the black panther soundtrack is the ludwig gordonson sound like he's doing the score on that and he's been far more open and then venev worked with another like danish 
musician um, Johansson, I think, who died. And then so Hans Zimmer took a little bit of that like Inception love, and then like I like mixed it through Black Panther, so it still has that like crazy deep electronic note. But right. then now I was adding. Um, adding percussion from lots of different places around the planet. Really interesting. Super, super interesting. Yeah. I mean, I love it. Like that part, like kind of, it, it got me thinking about like the amazing way in which film scoring in the last 20 years has sort of done in this like strange mixed media thing, like starting, like it just, when film score started to be the place where like your weirdo electronic musicians from the eighties and nineties started to like, actually do other things it has become such a weird and awesome and rich medium whether it's mark mother's bod initially um but then into like i mean the the trent reznor atticus ross work the johnny greenwood work the um like all of that like and that then i think influenced people like zimmer who are these traditional musicians who to start playing around with other things. I mean, I, I just think film scoring right now is in such a rich, amazing place. And it does so much for, um, you know, some of our broader concerns about the, this, the colonialism in this film mm-hmm. and the ways in which, and, and our concerns about the white savior narratives that we're seeing unfold. I mean, to the degree that I have any trust in Villeneuve's ability to say something interesting and nuanced in part two, a lot of that is based on the information I'm receiving in the score of part one. Yeah. Contrasted with if they had scored that like a Aaron Copeland sound or something like that. I mean, if they if they had done old-fashioned Spielberg strings on this or David Lean, Lawrence of Arabia, it mm-hmm. then you're like, oh, now I know what now I know what movie this is, and I'm deeply, I, I know where it's going, and I'm not sure I want to go there. But the the score cuts against that just the way that opening monologue, Adam, that you mentioned does, yeah. and and it it gives me some some genuine curiosity about how they'll play in the second part, which I will be glad to see as soon as it comes. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm interested enough. Let me let me throw in a little um... yeah. A little, a little tidbit that uh, I think is just fascinating, which was the first time they tried to film this. I think it was the late 70s. And I can't remember the director's name, but he had uh, he had signed Salvador Dali to play uh, the Baron and had asked Led Zeppelin to do the soundtrack, um, which I think would just be a fascinating thing to hear. <laughs> I was reading about that, Casey. Yeah. And... Um, I, mean, I think we made a documentary. Made a documentary about it, which, like, documentaries about failed movies, is like one of my favorites. Um, but apparently, the the studio said um, they liked the movie under two hours, and the filmmaker preferred it to be somewhere in the neighborhood of twelve to fourteen. Right. <laughs> which just speaks to your cable comment of earlier. This should be on TV. Before we move to scripture, let me say that we're grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century. We want to guide your attention to the work they're doing. Uh, late last week, the Century published a new excerpt from Norman Wiersma's new book about God and God's creating love. Uh, it's actually a really lovely piece. It's worth your time. 
about the way in which the sort of doctrine of ex nihilo might actually be a, a genuine way to talk about the creative love of God. Uh, really lovely. If you are listening and don't yet subscribe to Christian Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam and Casey both. Let's talk about preaching. The texts for this upcoming lectionary are from year B, November 14th. We've got a text from Samuel about Hannah's tears and her conversation with Eli. We've got a prophecy from Daniel. We've got eschatology about Christ in the book of Hebrews, and then Jesus's apocalyptic promises in Mark. Uh, Casey, as you think through these scriptures, are there ways in which they bounce off of the Dune movie or the Dune text? And how does Dune help you prepare for preaching from those scriptures? I, I think the one that immediately jumps out at me um, is the first Samuel text about Hannah. Uh, Hannah is there, obviously, um, in the temple. Uh, she is moved to tears as she is barren and, and seeking a son, and she has this strange um, strange conversation with Eli, and then, of course, she conceives. And uh, part of what is happening there for me as I read that text is that it's a significant transition, the life of, of Israel, um, that you're moving from a time where the people did whatever they wished because there was no king. Uh, to the shift to a story by which the end of it will have the sort of the promised king, the Messiah, be anointed. Um, and the the song that she sings in chapter two, uh, which I think is the secondary text, um, is the one obviously that, that sort of stays with me. And part of the reason it stays with me is that, you know, a version of that song is, is sung by Mary in a similar moment and what is to come of, of that, but uh, it, like the sort of B'nai Gesserit, this, this group of women who for thousands of years carries this particular story about how the world is supposed to be and who is supposed to lead it, uh, there's a similar sort of uh, handing down of the tradition uh, wherein the just ruler is the one who feeds those who are hungry, sends away those who are greedy and ravenous, who uh, breaks the, the, the bows of those who are um, the oppressors. And so uh, it seems that the story, along with that sort of passing down of tradition, could be a way that a preacher might, might go at it that Sunday. Yeah, I mean, that, that text is so rich in part because it centers the people who are typically peripheral, right? And... Um, you know, like even Samuel is not really, even though the book bears his name, is not really like the center of the story. He's not the central character. He's he's the he's the person next to the central character. And then you get the story of how Samuel came to be the person next to the central character. Um, and Hannah sort of exists on that periphery. But without Hannah, we recognize like there is no uh, there is no anointing. There is no ability or way to find the the the, the chosen one, the the one who will lead the, the nation to peace, and um, and I find that like really interesting. She's such a unique character. I, I was I was hanging out with some rabbis once, and they were we were talking about Hannah, and that that passage in particular in the Talmud gets a lot of attention, in part because it's um, it's where Jewish postures of prayer find their model 
So Hannah, at least in the old in the Hebrew scriptures, are, is understood as this sort of like paradigmatic prayer. She's the one who knows how to pray because when she prays, God actually listens. And what, the way that she prays is she stands up, she seems to like rock back and forth and she speaks, but doesn't say anything. So if you've seen people in like, have you seen pious Jews in regular prayer? Like they stand, they rock and they, and their lips move. And that's because of Hannah and they're, they're sort of, standing out um they're following the model of hannah and then the talmud says that she is the first person to use the lord of hosts as a title for god <laughs> and so they that positions her as one of the namers of god and that that gives her this very important role that no one before her at least chronologically in the scriptures as they're organized had used that particular title and that title is designed in some ways to shame god to say, you, Lord of hosts, you who have so much, who have so much progeny, why can't you give me one son? Um, and there's something really beautiful that's going on there. Like that even like, like Lady Jessica, like some of these other people who have to stand in the periphery, there is a very specific set of postures that are used to not in, totally inflame the situation, but also seek to organize and bend toward the direction of salvation. And that's an interesting, that's always an interesting character in any story, the person who only has limited amounts of power to affect the change, but uses that power with cleverness, with um, with a sort of thoughtfulness, with an eye toward the future. And I think Hannah does that well. And there are a number of characters within Dune who can also sort of be attributed to that. Yeah, I, mean, I think this is just as a on the surface, just a really interesting pairing of texts for a lectionary Sunday. Yeah, I mean, right. the, the, the Hannah stuff is fascinating. And I'm, I, I read it up and against what in some ways is a sort of cynical text from, from Hebrews yeah. um, that, that, I, that I, I, I really find fascinating, um, where the, the Hebrews text uh, opens up by saying, every priest stands there day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. <laughs> and it's an opening to say, you know, Jesus as the great high priest has already done this. And this is, you know, it's the, it's the contrast between what a temple priest does and what Jesus the Messiah is able to accomplish. Okay. But it is also sort of a cynical depiction of what I do for a living, right? Like, like <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to read that text any other way, but like, yeah, I stand there day after day and I keep doing stuff that doesn't do much. Just keep talking. Just keep going. Um, and there's a, there, there's something, um, uh, sort of probing and a little too too honest about that for my sake, um, and it, but it has me it has me thinking about the Bene Gesserit um, and Dune who who are this priestly class in their own way, um, and and you know correct my misunderstanding, but it, but it seems to me that this is a priestly class that has a very specific job, like self-identified, like they have a project, they have a long-term group project, which is through weird marriages and genetic engineering or whatever it is, um, uh, they, they are going to 
arrange for the universe to bring about the birth of this messianic figure. And it's they are contrasted with, for example, anything in Second Temple Judaism, which is waiting for a messiah to appear, but not necessarily like trying to engineer the appearance of a messiah. And those feel like really different approaches to what priestly vocation is. Uh-huh. And so I, I, it, it, it sort of puts into stark relief, like, what are we doing? Because <laughs> I'm not interested in trying to genetically engineer a messiah. So like we're, we're doing something that is um, somewhat removed from that, right? We are engaged in relationship. We are engaged in community building. We are engaged in, in trying to cultivate um, communities of, of hospitality and warmth and love and peacemaking. And I truly believe and live all of that to the fullest extent possible, but it is somewhat less tangible um, as a job description than like, we are trying to engineer this thing. And I think it shows up here in this Hebrews text of a little bit of the like, I don't know, we stand around and we try to do stuff and that's sort of working and sort of mostly Jesus does it. Um, and yeah. I, I don't know, there's something kind of honest about that that I'm that I'm resonating with. There's an interesting piece of that, which is that, you know, every priest stands day after day, makes the same sacrifices, is in the temple, and then Mark 13, Jesus says, all of this is coming down. Yeah, right. And that, none, yeah. Of this, none of this can exist if the new world is to come. And, and by and large, what we are, protectors of institutions, um, at the same time, we try to gently change them in some way. And so, I don't know if it's... And prepare people for them to come down. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, this is where, like, our ecclesiologies hit the road, don't they? I mean, there are per- there are parts of the church that say, like, the church will, be- will belong in the eschaton, right? Like, that, that, is, that is part of God's ordained plan for it to exist in perpetuity. As a Protestant, I, I'm not sure I fully agree with this. I, I think the, the church has specific temporal missions. But in the end of all things, will the church still be there? No. I mean, in some ways, the church is there to sort of work itself out of a job. So that, like, the world has met and and fully conformed and aligned with the, the kingdom of God as God would have it. And at that point, like, what's the purpose any longer? Like, you don't need me. You don't need me to preach any longer. If you have full access and encounter to God, like, what's, like, why am I here? Like, that's not, like, so that even, like, do our ecclesiologies have that moment where we say, like, our hope, one of our hopes is that this church doesn't exist any longer, right? So that I don't have to stand up here and do the same thing every day. Yeah, I'm actually preaching an installation next Sunday with all these lectionary texts. And it's, uh, and you can just, the through line through them is perhaps like, these are not maybe the texts I would normally choose for an installation. It just happens to be the lectionary that we're using, but it does have a little bit of like, welcome to the job. I'm not sure what you're doing, but good luck. Um, And and that, that, there's there's some holiness then that I'm trying to find my way to. It's just making me think of this line that's in our 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 book of order, which uh, I always change a little bit. But the church is a provisional exhibition of the kingdom of God. Yeah. 
Um, that when God is with us and God wipes away every tear and there's immediate access of what need is a flower committee at that point. Amen. Amen to that. All right, Casey, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for talking about Dune. I would, I love talking about Dune. Maybe I can see you in six years when the next one comes out. (laughs) We'll we'll bring you back for part two. Yeah, of course. All right. All right. See you. Excellent. Thanks. All right. Now it is time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, hit me. What's your postlude for the week? Uh, I have two mini postludes. The first is that the next unfilmable series that you'd like to read is called In the Name of the Wind. It's the first book. It's called The King Keller Chronicles. Um, and the, uh, it's amazing. It's by an author named Patrick Rothfuss. If you're into fantasy literature of any sort, this book is brilliant. He's a um, most fantasy literature gets its value from plot and from convention, but Patrick Rothfuss can actually write. Like his his prose is actually quite stunning. And so, if you want to read another unfilmable. Um, <laughs> book this uh the king color chronicles and the first book in it called um uh the name of the wind is really really good it is incredibly good uh and i finished the second book just recently to give it a little bit more game of thrones feel there is a third book that has been in the process of being written for almost 10 years now that everybody is waiting on and um and no one seems to know when it will be finished so if you are also um, interested in, in doing the Game of Thrones thing where you're waiting for George R. R. Martin to like finish a book, you can also start the King Killer Chronicles where you will also be waiting on a third book. The other little postlude I have is that um, yesterday, Radiohead um, released Kid Amnesia, which is a, a three-disc uh, re-release of Kid A and Amnesiac, um, which were their two early 2000 albums from, from Radiohead and has a whole bunch of like B-sides and stuff on it that's really good. But this is just an opportunity for me to encourage everyone to go and listen to everything in its right place, especially in light of the film scores that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. The, the first synth chords that came out, this is 2001. I remember where I was when I listened to Kid A for the first time. And it was like absolutely astounding to me. And I've probably talked about this song before in part because I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with it. But Radiohead being rock and roll artists who sort of find their way into, uh, into electronic music and especially sort of ambient electronic music is a really important, important movement within music that affects how films are scored going forward so and i would say everything in its right place in particular and then avril 14th which is an aphex twin song um aphex twins is like a very well-known electronic artist part uh, artist and then he he wrote this little piano tune that gets played a lot and you would uh, get sampled by kanye later and a lot of other places but if you just listen to those two things and then go and listen to the um, the social network score. You will see the pieces sort of form into each other, um, especially the um, the uh, the social network. What's it called? The um, 
the hand covers the bruise, mm. which is an amazing piece of music. It was really spare and beautiful. And in that, in that movie is like stunning. Um, but I would encourage everyone to just kind of like go and bask in, uh, in everything in its right place by Radiohead and Avril the Avril 14th by Apex Funds. That's my, that's my post. Adam, here's my question. Is there anything left that is unfilmable? That's a really good question. I mean, that's a, that, that gets bandied about way too much. So no, no, they're just long. Right. Especially given how much money is spent on, on IP at this point, the answer is no. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I think we've, I think we killed unfilmable. I think, Peter Jackson stabbed it in the heart and Game of Thrones and Game of Thrones stomped on it until it was gone. Um, yeah, well, like, well, let's put that new line funded that murder. Right, absolutely. <laughs> and then, and then HBO funded <laughs> another murder. Right. This is like, a, a burial to follow. You know, the question is, is like, is there enough money to film the unfilmable? And the answer in, in the in our industry is yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, totally different tack. Um, I have occasionally at times on this show uh, ranted on my, my little soapbox about how um, small town life um, in, in, in popular depiction gets used as a kind of, always used as a kind of site for moral formation. Like everyone has to leave the big city to go to small towns to find themselves or learn what real life is or learn what's really important or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I wanted to hold up. <laughs> yeah, we're getting into this is like this is Christmas movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. Yeah. And um, I wanted to hold up a counter example to that because I think it's important for me to recognize when things get that right. And um, and the counter example in some ways um, that they're similar. They're actually two. The first is. Um, the the film version of In the Heights that came out earlier in the summer, um, which I think posits Washington Heights as a small town and uses it as a site for moral formation. Mm-hmm. Though Washington Heights is, of course, like a borough of a Manhattan, a giant, huge city. Um, but the one I really want to talk about is uh, a young adult novel or a kid's novel um, that Charlie and I have been reading by Karina Jan Glazier called The Vanderbeekers of 141st Street. <laughs> also set in New York, set in Harlem. Um, the Vanderbeekers is a, a story about a family who are leasing out a brownstone in Harlem um, when they find out several days before Christmas, so it is a Christmas story, that their that they're sort of huh. mysterious and reclusive landlord is, um, in, is canceling their lease and they're gonna have to leave. And they're gonna have to leave their neighborhood and all the community and family and home that they have there. And there are multiple kids in this family it is very much coded as like big character filled loving family um, who the, the kids then go on a series of adventures to try to convince this reclusive Scrooge like landlord um, that he should allow them to stay. So this is uh, a family Christmas novel set against the backdrop of gentrification uh, and and Harlem and the way in which a community uh, changes over time and the ways in which a community, and in this case, I would argue a small town uh, holds itself in relationship with one another 
And it is just a fabulous, fabulous book. You do not have to have a kid to read it to. Um, I think you could easily read it to yourself uh, and enjoy every second of it. So I highly recommend The Vanderbeekers of 141st Street by Karina Young Glacier. Um, I look forward to that. I do have a kid to read it to, and I will read it to a child. <laughs> well, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it all wrong. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, as always, to our friends at the Christian Century and the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, The Pain Box. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam.